Good morning, everyone. This is Austin Jardine. Welcome to the Vanguard Project. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, my name is Austin Jardine, and uh, quite honestly, I'm just a dude that loves to learn. I love spending time with folks, understanding who they are, what they do, what they've gone through to get to where they're at, and uh, my hope really is to relate to you all in a, in a way with these stories that gets you excited to get after something new or uh, to continue pushing forward with something you love. With that being said, I've got Nicole Scariglino in the living room with me. We've got all the dogs, tears hanging out over here too, and uh, she's... He says hi. I don't know if the mic picked that up, but uh, we're hanging out tonight. And uh, if you hear some dogs barking in the background, it's because uh, they probably found a squirrel. So, uh, <laughs> with that being said, Nicole, thanks for thanks for hopping on and, and hanging out today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, we were talking a little bit beforehand on kind of what we wanted to maybe cover tonight, and it sounds like there's a ton of different things. <laughs> and and Tier Tier gave us the idea to start with. You were in. Was it Bo Mass Massachusetts or Boston when the World Trade Center was hit? Or, no, I uh, the was Twin in Towers. Manhattan. You were in Manhattan. Oh, I misheard. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So you were there when the Twin Towers were hit. Yeah. And that, you said, is kind of what started a lot of things for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I will back it up a little bit. I was a, uh art nerd slash athlete to really conflicting sides of my personality when I was growing up in, in high school and whatnot. I was terrible in school didn't graduate on time, had to go to summer school to, to walk. And, uh, but I was great at art and I was a great athlete. So those were my two strengths, which is kind of the, the <laughs> same now, super social and great at, you know, being a meathead and getting weird. So I wound up after I graduated, I was a lifeguard. That was my first, you know, real, call it a real job and taught swim lessons. And after I graduated, I spent a year lifeguarding and doing a creating a portfolio so I had this one skill this one thing I was really good at that I knew I couldn't make it to college on an athlete scholarship because it did require a certain amount of grades but I knew that art wise I was good enough that I could probably get myself into college on that note and that was my hope for getting out and you know a launch pad for everyone wants to make something of their the, their life. So that was my ticket to getting out of North Carolina where I'm originally from Long Island, New York. The family moved, my immediate family moved to North Carolina when I was 10. And I said, fuck this place. Can I curse on here? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I forgot to say that. <laughs> all right. It's like pretty cool. much all bets are yeah. off. All right. Cause my mouth is, I got bartender mouth. Um, and I just wanted out of there because I wanted to experience more out of life and I wanted to experience the world I knew that the best way to do that number one I hated Raleigh North Carolina back in the 90s was not what Raleigh North Carolina is today it, it was a really small town and just kind of nothing going on and not a ton of there wasn't a lot of diversity in culture sure. and I knew I didn't have a ton of money my family didn't have a ton of money so if I could get myself back to New York where Everything was happening. Exactly. <laughs> then I could be in one place where I could experience, you know, tons of different cultures all in one place. Sure. And I knew that if I was going to have a chance of making it in life, that was going to be super important. So I spent my, my days bartending and my nights painting and building a portfolio and um, applied to art school at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I wound up getting in. Nice. Yeah. So they accepted me on the spot based off of my portfolio. But when they saw my grades, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, they sent a, a letter declining yeah. my entry. So is, is the fashion, is that like a pretty prestigious school? I don't know. It's really, yeah, it's team. really well known. I don't know how it is now, but it's where my mom went to school for display and exhibit design, okay. which I'm sure is where some of that I idea of going okay. came from, but it was well known. Um, it was huge for fashion merchandising and marketing and de fashion design. The other programs, they had graphic design and they had um, fine art and whatnot. And that those programs weren't as big 
there, there are other schools that probably had better programs, but it was New York. That's where I wanted to be. And it was where mom went. So I think there was a little like, you know, family, family kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so that's where my, my big aim was. And I knew a girl from high school. We weren't super tight in high school, but she got herself in and was waiting tables for a year before moving up there. She was paying her own way. So we kind of like, you know, linked up and pushed each other and yeah. we wound up being roommates. But I did get in. They declined. They sent the letter declining me after saying yes on the spot. <laughs> and this friend of mine and I, her mom worked for an airline. And this two eight, I guess we must have been eighteen at the time, eighteen year olds, who had never done shit on our own. The very next day after getting that letter, we flew up to Manhattan by ourselves. I called up the dean and was like, "Hey, man, um, can we have a meeting? I really need to sit in front of you and plead my case." Yeah. So they gave me a, an academic probation and we're like, all right. So that's kind of where part of the story started. So I, I went to back to New York at 19 and was living on campus for a while, studying fine art and being the weird artist. It was awesome. Then I discovered nightclubs and <laughs> <laughs> the dangerous life of nightclubs. Yeah. Got a, the, the famous old, uh, Tara Canova ID. I'm sorry, Tara Canova from Staten Island, wherever you are now, that got passed around everyone. But <laughs> she was my ticket to freedom for a long time. <laughs> this expired ID that apparently no one checked on. But I started going out and discovered a whole new world. And art and music, they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And that nightlife thing, even to this day, it it's weird. It's different. It's outside the lines. And it it can really inspire a lot of writing and art and just, you know, creative juices. So it, my art got better and better. My grades got worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a blast and I ab fell absolutely in love with, uh, you know, the whole electronic music dancing because it was so different. Yeah. Kids in New York grew up with all that. It's, you have house music on the radio when you're in high school living in New York. And obviously North Carolina was like, here you all ruined down yeah, the country road with crack beer, <laughs> high boots and dizzy dukes. So it was a whole new world and I, I was really down for it. And um, yeah, wound up, decided I wanted to be a DJ and wound up, dropping out, <laughs> wound up dropping out of school. That's a whole other fun story how I got a job at Mute Records, which is a huge independent record label. They got bought out by BMI Music in the early 2000s, but they had Depeche Mode. They had Prodigy before Madonna's label Maverick bought them out. Uh, Paul Van Dyke, which was the seller for me, he's a huge German trance DJ. And back during those days, that was like the DJ that my friends and I were all super into was Paul Van Dyke. Yeah. And, um, I had started collecting records when I was still in school at FIT painting and started collecting these records. I'd, I'd go to the, the big music store, Tower Records, and I'd just walk up there and they had those old stations where they had CDs and whatnot. And I'd go and listen to everything for hours. And I wound up buying, started to build a little collection of dance music CDs and then vinyl records, even though I didn't have turntables yet. I was planning ahead. <laughs> so when I decided that I wanted to do this whole like DJ music executive thing, I, um, I looked through my stack of records to see who had offices in New York okay. and found several of them and reached out. I think this is really dating myself, but I, I sent faxes. <laughs> <laughs> email wasn't even that big yet. So I definitely sent faxes over. I had Morse a friend, code. yeah, had a friend help me like, you know, fudging a resume. Like I'd actually like done shit with, <laughs> I was 19 years old. Wordsmithing. It goes a long way. <laughs> right. Um, and I remember the day, remember that clear plastic phone? This phone comes back oh, later yeah. in the story. The clear one with like all the colors on the inside. I think yep. the, all the wiring the, and stuff. Yeah, the it girls on like. as fuck now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was that show? Full House? Yeah. I think the girls on Full House had it. So this, this phone made it with me to college. It made it with me to my Manhattan apartment too. Back when people actually had house phones. But I remember the day I got the phone call when I was in my dorm room. And I think this was my second year at FIT. It was my, like, maybe my third semester. I was up for potentially being an RA, which is 
fucking laughable. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get free housing. <laughs> yeah, but that's what the RA role is for, though. <laughs> right, to get free housing. So um, I remember the day that they called me, and it was Mute Records, the, the mother of all record labels, because they had Paul Van Dyke. Yeah. And they needed some extra help in like putting together press kit in their mail room, essentially. So the movie secret to my success, okay. that was when I heard this, they needed help in their mail room. I was like, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is my big break. And I ran with it. And when you're that age too, and you have that much aspiration, you are ready and willing and able to, to block do anything. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it, so I re they called me up. I was super stoked. I went down and I think I wound up working there like two or three days a week for six bucks an hour. This is Manhattan yeah. in, uh, I think 1999, it had been 1999 or 2000. I'll probably mess up on my years here. There are firm markers and then there's a lot of blurry shit because <laughs> it was like 20 something years ago. Um, so they called me, brought me in and I started working for six bucks an hour. And my job was I'd go down, I'd pick up the mail cart at the post office i'd walk it like this was like a grandparent story um it was like two avenues and probably like 10 blocks yeah. to go to mute records which was on 22nd between 6th and 7th and i'd help stuff press kits and run coffee and literally like all all the stereotypical like bitch work sure and i fucking loved it because <laughs> i'd i'd never i was like here i am at 19 or 20 in uh you know new york record label and there's pictures of like depeche mode and yeah. gold frap and nick cave and it's the like bad the land of opportunity there it was it really insane felt, yeah so it was really hard for me to even fully wrap my head around and that was kind of a weird starting point for it's kind of the key I had I had the key to the city so I was working these events where I'd go to nightclubs were part of my job where I'm working guest list stuff and whatever so I'm gonna try to not go down too many rabbit holes because there are so many crazy stories to to tell here but I, I worked at the record label for a while and eventually completely dropped out of school so my parents who helped me out a little bit here and there I was on student loans and student housing, but when I decided to drop out of school and pursue being a DJ and a record executive, <laughs> they that was it. it. They were like, "We're we can't we can't help you anymore. You're on your own." Yeah. And they weren't paying my way. Like I said, I was on student loans, but I could call up mom and dad and be like, "Can you guys help me with some groceries or whatever?" So now I'm 19 on my own, completely for the first time in Manhattan. I was already kind of on my own. Family parents are. 500 miles south in North Carolina. I had some family on Long Island and New Jersey, but for the most part, I was without a rope. Yeah. Um, but now I'm really like flapping in the breeze. <laughs> so I moved off campus, moved to Brooklyn with some friends, and um, was just doing this record label thing. I'd commute in and stuff press kits. And after a while, six bucks an hour doesn't really cut it <laughs> when you're on your own living in the city. There were a lot of turnstiles that I jumped sorry NYPD and I had to figure something else out because I did a lot of odd jobs here and there working doing nightclub stuff so I went in to Limelight nightclub if you've ever seen the movie Party Monster with Macaulay Culkin no watch it it's fucking weird and it's a true story Really? Okay. Yeah. It's murder. There's murder. Murder. <laughs> murder, drugs, sex, <laughs> rock and roll. The whole Everything night. that New York is? No, right. I'm just kidding. It was I a, have no idea. <laughs> it was a really famous club inside an old church on 7th Avenue. Okay. I feel like I've heard of that. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. There, okay. I mean, there, is a, there was a lot of press surrounding that place. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. They were on, I remember watching these club kids on Maury. It was like Povich or some shit like that. Um way back in the day before you know, while I was probably still in high school and didn't put two and two together until I was in there and started hearing stories and seeing pictures and be like, Oh shit. Okay. This is familiar. Now I know why. <laughs> um, so I went there, I guess I've always had this, I've always been drawn to just experience yeah. shit that's weird and different and out there. And my aunt used to always say, curiosity killed the cat but satisfaction brought him back that was her take for me she's like because satisfaction gave you nine lives right exactly because she's like kid i don't 
you know, you you get into some weird shit, but and, but she was always oddly supportive of my shenanigans, which was great. So I I go walk into Limelight and I I just ask him for a job because I couldn't do the six bucks an hour thing several days a week and piecemealing things together. Now I'm paying my own way. Subway fare was expensive even back in the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. So they did, they actually had just had someone quit. It was their full-time receptionist. And that was 10 bucks an hour was good enough for me. So I took this job at this nightclub and I told Mute that I had kind of had to take a step back and they understood but I was, I really busted my ass there because I wanted to work myself into a position. They were like, just hang on. We're going to try and do what we can to get you in here. But we don't have a place quite yet. So just, you know. Tough it out. Yeah, exactly. And so I worked at Limelight and answered phones there and saw some super weird shit. And it was amazing <laughs> and <laughs> crazy. And it was in the process of the, the owner of the place, like being in the middle of getting deported back to Canada. That's <laughs> I, no shit. The movie Kids was yeah. filmed in one of the clubs that he owned. So it was the Tunnel Limelight. He owned another one, Palladium. But Tunnel was the club that um, Kids was, a lot of it was filmed at. And that shut down while I was working at Limelight. So they're, they basically, they knew, they were like, man, this this kid is, um, does not belong in this place. So we're going to try and get her out of there. And they did. I think I was there like six months before they came through and called me up one day while I was on the job and said, we've got a full-time spot for you. They got rid of someone else (laughs) (laughs) and brought me in as the publicist assistant. And I was super stoked because shit was going real south as as far as the, you know, your boss is about to be deported. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're doing a good job. Bella, Bella, one of the dogs, is, is in your lap. Okay. So they called me up. They hired me. And I, I basically, shit had been escalate, escalating at, at Limelight. And, um, I mean, people weren't getting paid and that sort of thing. And it was in the, the closing days. But, man, do I have some wild, crazy stories from those days that no one at my age should have ever been exposed to, but it was awesome. Like and, Wolf of Wall Street crazy? Uh, in some aspects, nice. fill in the blanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, one of my coworkers, several of my coworkers worked at places like Studio 54, so um, I definitely smoked a not joint. It was a joint, but it was a not joint uh, <laughs> in the booth with one of the guys that worked at Studio 54. It's a really, if it if a joint is really thin, don't smoke it. <laughs> it's probably sketchy. I don't know if I should <laughs> cut this, cut this in or leave it out. Sorry, mom. Um, but Arthur, the lighting guy from Studio 54 was our lighting guy. Yeah. So it's, they were great dudes. They were always, you know, no one ever did anything shady with me. They always looked out for me, but these were the people that I was, Yeah. they were my coworkers. <laughs> so you can imagine like the interesting stories and characters and club kids wearing like 12 inch platform shoes that would come through like stomping in these ridiculous shoes, you know, demanding their paycheck, which was really <laughs> funny to watch when you, you know, just picture the giant platform clown shoes and someone really pissed off that they're not getting their paycheck. <laughs> that's awesome yeah so leading up to this point right so i can only imagine you know I've, I've have friends that went the art route after school after high school when you got kind of cut out or cut off sent on your own how did you were you freaked out at all by that like that's something like i wasn't no that's, yeah i was it was exhilarating <laughs> really <laughs> especially at that age i mean i always was very independent-minded so it was just a new challenge. Yeah. You're and like, fuck it. Whatever yeah, happens next, let's I, do it. I was living life. I was in Manhattan, the city of possibilities. I was going to be this, you know, I watched Great Expectations with Ethan Hawke one too many times and <laughs> was dead set on being a vagabond artist. My shit was going to be in galleries at some point. So it was exciting. I, I felt like it was all a part of the artist thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I... Mute pulled me back in. I got a job. I was working with them. That week could go down stories for days with, with that time. But during that time, I, was, I had moved back to Manhattan because I got a sweeter deal, $300 a month, nice. um, sharing a loft space with three other girls. We lived in a commercial 
space, the property manager knew that we were living there, but I think we we're the only actual like l tenants that were living there. We lived next door. Our next door neighbors were, um, it was a music studio. Okay. So they'd come in and they'd blast and record at all weird hours, which was totally fine by us. And that was on 29th between 7th and 8th Avenues. And it was an old furrier building. So we had this big loft space. We had a bathroom. We had a kitchen. The window opened up. I can't remember what movie or show we were watching recently where they were like, look at this view. Oh, uh, across the universe. Okay. They move into a Manhattan apartment and they were like, in the view and open the window. It's just a brick wall. <laughs> that was our apartment. <laughs> we had a freight elevator, which I was, I thought was fucking that, awesome. That is cool. Yeah. That is cool. Until you get stuck in it. And um, you're like... Or until they close it at a certain hour because oh. they, and you have to sleep outside with a bagel and coffee in your lap and you're woken up at nine o'clock in the morning by people, people going to work. <laughs> Speaking. Don't worry. I live here. And they're like, clearly that's a, that's a crock of shit. <laughs> so that was a, a downside to that. Um, but we our our bedroom, so to speak, was just cut off by a, it was sectioned off by a, like a tapestry curtain. Yeah. And we had bunk beds. So we're four of us sleeping in bunk beds at, in this Manhattan apartment. And our closet was a, um, it was a vault, which yeah, it always remained cool. open because the door yeah. was super heavy. But it's like, it, it really is like the artist's life. Like I can, yes. I can see it. This, yeah. this is a movie. Yeah. And I wish I had more pictures from that time. I think there's a, a box that I duct tape shut that still lives at my <laughs> parents' house. But a lot of them have gotten lost over the years. So it was a... I mean, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And Mute had only hired me. The position was a Monday through, it was Monday through Thursday, I believe. I think I had Fridays off or the other way around. I can't remember. I, it was only four days a week because back then in New York, a lot of employers had to do that to save on insurance because yeah. it was required that you got health insurance if you worked 40 hours a week. So 10 bucks an hour living in Manhattan at, um, you know, 19 to 20 something and at at the time I, I had my 21st birthday at the boss's bar which I don't think is open anymore it was called Otis he had a couple bars he named him after his dogs and that was on the west side highway yeah. so I, I DJ'd at my boss's bar on my 21st birthday <laughs> <laughs> I turned 21 in New York too Actually, oh really yeah my first because I never drank growing up and my my first drink was a Manhattan in Manhattan. Oh my God. In Grand Central Station. <laughs> and it was like drinking diesel fuel. I, yeah. Yeah. I, it was so funny because I only had like a sip of it and I was like, I was with my dad and I was like, this fucking sucks. <laughs> and like, this is like long before even like I started swearing and like kind of like being my own like <laughs> obnoxious human being. We drank that and something else. And then we went to like a bar and drank like a ton of beer. And then I remember like, okay, I don't remember tripping over like the curb and be like, oh, fuck. And my dad's like, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, if he had started you on Zima the way that I started out, then you probably would have gone down to a, a, a dark rabbit hole of <laughs> drinking drugs and rock and roll for a long time. Should have been artists. <laughs> exactly. Zima was my first beverage, alcoholic beverage. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 13. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers over here like, and how old were you? Yeah, we convinced, we convinced the, one of the moms that we wanted the, the 3D. Remember those pictures that you stare at? Instead yeah. Of the, we convinced her that we wanted those. We didn't want to drink the alcohol at all. <laughs> <laughs> what the well, fuck? you drink that and then you stare at it. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's what they're there for. Um, so I had turned 21, was living this wild rock star lifestyle had kind of for a newly 21 year old had kind of the key to the city. I worked at a record label for this bunch of huge artists and got to do with tons of cool shit and had part-time gigs at nightclubs. And I was, I was living the good life. I didn't make a lot of money, but I had a lot of really interesting opportunities yeah. and my stories. Definitely the kids that, you know, I was friends with in high school, we, kind of had a hard time relating to each other after a certain <laughs> point. Um, so I had, you know, my whole new group of wild friends up there too. 
And um, one day I was, this is funny too, because if you've ever watched Dave Chappelle, you'll get this. Um, one of my roommates was a model. Like she was actually, we were roommates at FIT and we wound up living together. That's how I got this place of the apartment. And she was doing other odd jobs are still in school. I can't remember. But the whole reason why she was in New York is because she was an actual model and she'd gotten jobs and she was pursuing that. She had a real portfolio book and whatnot. And uh, the big place for models to hang out at the time on Monday nights was the Chinga Chong Chong China Club. <laughs> it's a China Club, but it that was a huge. So I, that was that's what the, it was called. It was the China Club, oh, but okay. in the the famous Dave Chappelle skit. Oh, that's what he says. Oh, okay, Charlie, got Charlie it. Mer Rick James uh, talks about the China Club. The famous one where he, what did the five fingers say to the face? They were at China Club Got when it. that happened. So all the aspiring models would go to China Club on Monday nights because the uh, agents would go there and whatnot. There were certain places where like agents would go and scout yeah. models and whatever. So she and her boyfriend and one of their best friends had gone to China Club. They went every Monday night. They'd gone and they'd gotten hammered and they're laid out on, you know, couches and passed out and hung over the next morning it was tuesday september 11th 2001 and there um i wake up to get ready to go walk down to work because we're on 29th between 7th and 8th work was on 22nd between uh 6th and 7th and i'm late as per usual not much of that has <laughs> changed and that phone, that clear plastic phone that had made it <laughs> through all these different moves <laughs> rings and I picked up and one of the responsible older roommate who was already at work across the street at a um, fashion design showroom. She called and she said, turn on the TV. So one roommate was back visiting her family in Arizona. One's already at work. The other one and her two friends are, you know, laid out on, in the furniture, splayed across the, the apartment. And um, Sarah had called and said, uh, turn on the TV. And she sounded really like serious. Yeah. And I was like, Okay, because <laughs> I hardly, I hardly watch TV at all, anyways. So I clicked the TV on, and that's when I saw that something major had happened. But it's still, I'm 21 years old, and I wasn't like a mature 21. I was a head up my ass, zero idea, you know, world politics. I didn't sure. pay attention to that part of class whatsoever, and. I'm watching and it's they were telling us that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. So your first thought is like, oh, fluke. That's really crazy. And I don't even really fully remember at the time that elapsed between the two. But I'd woken, I think Alex, the, the boyfriend, had woken up by then and started watching. And we sat and watched as the second plane flew into the World Trade Center, yeah. which was only like two point something miles from where we're living at and where we were at that moment. And to give you frame of reference, our apartment on 29th, between 7th and 8th, it was considered Chelsea, but we were just a couple blocks from Penn Station, Madison Square Garden, and then a couple of blocks and like a couple, two avenues over diagonal from uh, the Empire State Building. So major transportation hub, major monument yeah so um i i don't know what especially for someone that had no idea of world happenings whatsoever it's not like a i i didn't watch the news to have the sudden realization that like, the city was under attack yeah as far as i was concerned the city the whole city was now under attack the first thing that came to mind was holy shit they're attacking, they're gonna start attacking major monuments, whoever whoever is doing this. I had no idea who it was or never heard of, um, you know, Taliban or I don't even know if we were calling yeah. that, at that at the time, but it was clear that this was really bad. So uh, I remember just grabbing everyone and the, the, everyone else was woken up by then and I had just looked around and was like, we, we've got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So yeah, we, we fled the city on foot and, um, eventually we, we had walked halfway up the Island and 
eventually one of the guys who had cash on him from partying the night before was able to bribe a cab. It was like the only car we had seen for hours. Uh, was able to bribe him with a $100 bill to take us up to the George Washington Bridge so we could exit the island. That was my only concern was getting off the island. So it was just pure survival instinct at that point. It was getting away because I didn't know it was going to, if anything, I thought that we were just, everything was going to start getting bombed next. That Penn Station seemed like it made sense to me and major monuments. So we got up there and had to wait several hours before crossing the GW Bridge. They had to clear it. And uh, it was so bizarre because when we walked out of the apartment, I remember there was a Radio Shack back when Radio Shack was still a thing. (laughs) And I remember walking out of my apartment with, this stupid hippie like quilted patch bag. Everyone in the nineties knew what these were. Mm -hmm. And I'd stuffed, I think a couple pairs of clothes, um, a handful of photos and you can go ahead and laugh a teddy bear. Like with this, everyone had like a, like one of those things they wouldn't get rid of. Yeah. It makes sense though. I mean, it's a shitty time to be. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I'm in, I'm 21. It's not like I slept with this thing, but it was like one of those things. It just reminded me of family. So I didn't know if we were ever going to get to go back to our apartment ever again. So I grabbed things that had some sort of like family, you know, meeting and we took off. So we walk out of the apartment, we walk outside and I don't know if it's my memory or if it was how it, if it was the way my mind remembers it or if it was reality, but I remember silence Hmm. other than um, sirens, just silence and going and walking by like a radio shack and feeling like, like I was watching life kind of from the outside. Like it was a scene from a movie. Like that's something that you see in a movie, some big crazy thing happens. And then, you know, the, the characters walk in and they are watching it happen over and over on TV screens. That's how it really was. It was just a window full of, you know, TVs that they were advertising playing this scene over and over. And, um, we, Finally made it up to the GW, sat, waited to get cleared. And by this time, there's, you know, tons of police and military presence and whatsoever. And they, there were these blue vans that you would often call to take to the airport. That was before Uber. They'd pick up a bunch of different people on the, in the blue van and take you to the airport. There'd be a group of you. They used the blue vans to get all of us off of the island, and we were escorted by... Uh, military, military with their, I'm going to sound like an ass here, but probably M4s. Uh, I'm, I'm looking around to see if I'm right here. <laughs> At the time for me, it was big, scary military gun. Uh, but I, I did feel safer because of their presence. Cause it felt like somebody knew what the fuck they were doing. Cause I didn't know what the <laughs> fuck I was doing. So they carted us off and that the whole thing was so surreal. I remember calling, family tried calling us, the lines had been cut. There were cell phones that was early stages. They were really like the flip phones and right. shit. The Nokia brick. Yeah. And the lines had been cut for hours and we kept trying to call like our families from uh, pay phones to just let them know that, hey, we're all right and we're on our way. And I remember calling and finally getting in touch with my, my mom, I think, from under the GW bridge on a pay phone. And it was like I split myself off in two in that moment. There was the the part, the normal part that would have like been freaking out in reaction to these insane events. And then there was a part that had to like shut that reaction down and like, all right, this is communicate, <laughs> right? Yeah. Communicate. And this is what we're doing and stay calm, cool and collected. So what did I do? I bitched about missing my hair appointment. because that's how the human mind is so crazy yeah it's a coping mechanism yeah it does what it has to do to protect itself and i learned so many years later that that was you know that that splitting off of myself that was a post-traumatic like shock reaction of kind of like splitting the part of myself that wanted to freak out over what was happening and then instead i decided to keep calm and carry on about that missed hair appointment. <laughs> <laughs> so we got carted off the island. And what was really weird was that 
up until that point, there was this large police and military presence getting us there. And then there was nothing. We got dropped off in Jersey on the other side of the bridge and just nothing. No instructions, like no information, just silence as we crossed that bridge. And we just watched as these towers were, you know, in flame, just two pillars of flames and smoke. So we get dropped off and we looked at each other and we were like, okay. Start. What happens now? We just started walking. So we walked Fort Lee Road um, it, all the way into Teaneck, New Jersey, before we eventually got a slice of pizza, called someone's mom, and it got picked up. <laughs> so that is part of my crazy part of my crazy story. And what pulled me art a, a little bit out of that, I'm going to be an artist not living in the normal world with my head up my ass path. If that had never happened, I would have just continued on my I'm my merry little way. And God knows, God knows how that yeah. would have been. Could have been bad. Could have been great. Who knows? Yeah. So after that, then you said, was that the big catalyst for what happens next in life? Did you decide like, okay, not gonna have my head up my ass anymore, and I want to do something different, or kind of? Okay. Um. It was, it was interesting. I think I don't remember how long we were out in Jersey. It. it this is a there's so many details that are crystal clear and so many that are super foggy, but eventually we came back to our apartment and that part of me that was still in shock. Your apartment back in town? In Manhattan. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, the part of me that was still in shock and denial about it decided to just try to keep steamrolling and living the life that I just like, this wasn't supposed to happen, man. This wasn't a part (laughs) of my plan. So I tried to keep plowing forward and I, what wound up happening was a lot more partying. Instead, it wasn't for fun. It was really to escape. Because now the city we're living in, literally, uh, we had just experienced an act of war on American soil. And we're living in the middle of it. We're living with, we're two miles upwind. So without going into really dark detail, mm-hmm. You're living with a mass grave and smells and sights and sounds. And, you know, these are really heavy things. And part of my brain completely turned that off because I was really hard-headed and wanted, wanted to keep doing what I had set out to do. Eventually, I realized that this was not the path that I wanted to be on, you know, partying and... It, I'll go ahead and and say it, partying and doing drugs and, you know, escaping in this kind of dark place of not participating in being a part of any kind of, can't say solution because I'm one, I was one little person, but I needed to start getting a little bit smarter and I wanted to be present and I wanted to be a, a healthier human being. And when I looked around at the people that I was surrounded by, I was like, this is not what I want for my future. Yeah. So I started working out. I started working out a lot. And I was an athlete growing up, but I'd thrown myself back into that. So I would go on runs. That was my new escape. I'd go run the West Side Highway, which was hard because sometimes you'd get smacked in the face with, you know, pretty, this was real. Our reality was pretty brutal at times. And you just had to kind of face it, live with it. So I did. I started running a lot. I started learning how to lift weights. I would go visit Whole Foods, which was brand new. And that was the beginning of me learning about nutrition. And in a sense, this was an escape itself as well, but it was a a lot healthier and started buying like oxygen magazines and, and whatnot. So I got really, really into working out, moved back to, I went back to North Carolina that following summer. I don't even know what really prompted that decision. I think I was just fried and realized that uh, I needed to to try and normalize, which was not something that that didn't happen for a good decade. (laughs) (laughs) Even then, I'm still not normal. But I had gone back to North Carolina and I I thought, like, this is it. I need to kind of reevaluate everything. I don't want to live that crazy lifestyle. Maybe I should go back to school. I was looking into new possibilities for myself. Going back to North Carolina from being in New York, living that kind of lifestyle where I was, 
you know, nightclubs and record label and experiencing what I just experienced, I had no idea what I was setting myself up for because I got back down there and, you know, I'd, everyone else, that was just an event that they saw on TV and to boot, my life before that happening was something that no one could relate to. They're going to frat parties and I'm like partying in DJ booths. Yeah, with, you're like, this is nothing. Yeah, it, it just, I couldn't relate to them. They couldn't relate to me. I was super short tempered. I was living a very fast paced lifestyle that I remember getting super mad waiting in line for um, a hot dog at the mall with friends. <laughs> and it was, I, you, the fumes, and I know that I'm tiny and not threatening, but my anger was out of control because number one, I was, I had some stuff going on that I didn't realize was going on and just the pace that I was living. So this didn't work out well for me. And I wound up going back to New York but I did this for a while. I eventually in my, there were, there was a lot of back and forth in, in the several years that passed that where I kept, it was like a tug of war. I wanted to be a butthead and go back and try and plow through and continue to push towards being an adult. But there was a part of me that was in complete like shell shock. So I'd run back home to safety, but nothing was a safe space because I hadn't found peace within myself and hadn't dealt with my shit. So I did, uh, I eventually got a personal training certification cause I was so into it. And again, that happened while I was back in North Carolina for a few months, got this study, got a certification and then had an old friend who had moved, uh, from the city. He was at a production studio when, when I was at Mute records and he had since moved out to long Island and was like, Hey, I'm starting this DJ band. I got a house and, you can come live up here. And I was like, well, not really doing much else. I'm a work in retail and I work part time <laughs> at a strip club. So sure. Packed up all my shit in my little shitty car and a couple of paintings and a bunch of records and drove back up to New York yet again to Long Island and had this little personal training certification. And he was like, well, I know you like to work out and I work out at this Bally's gym out here. So you should maybe Think about getting a job out there so you've got gas money and uh, whatever. So I got this job at Bally's. And when I went in, I went, I wanted front desk because it was, you know, you get a set pay. Yeah. And he made the mistake of telling them that I was a certified personal trainer. And I was like, fuck, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I'd never worked as a trainer before. So that's how that started. And it actually went on. So that became a decade of my life was a personal trainer. And that, God, that it was so awesome. It was it gave me a, a ton of purpose, being able to help people, help them live a, a better lifestyle, a healthier lifestyle. It, it gave me a real purpose to throw myself into, and I was super into it. So that was my thing I did for a good 10 years. I had gone from, I quit the whole DJ band thing. I was like, you know what, I like, I've got an adult job, and it's, this is kind of cool. I like this. I think I'm ready to give that other part of my life up completely, and uh, obviously that pissed the friend off that brought me up to, to be, a the, the DJ and the electronic band. Um, <laughs> wait, do you still have music out? Like if people were to go Google you? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have friends who made it big. I did not make it big. There were times that I actually did really well, but it, I never made it. I've got some awesome friends that are actually to this day. They're killing it. You can find them on. Anywhere. Uh, yeah. So that's awesome. But I, it's not the path that I stayed on. So, yeah, I gave that up so that I could, I really, I, I found purpose in this. It's like, if this is, this is an adult job and this is all right. I, yeah. I dig this. I can do this. This is my kind of adult. I can deal with this. So let's, let's talk about that for a sec, the, the sense of purpose. Because that's something that I think the generation kind of coming into the workforce now is really focusing on is the sense of purpose and fulfillment. How, do you, how did you find purpose in personal training was that something that you kind of fell into or did you actively seek it definitely out? fell into because it was mostly selfish reasons it was largely I started working out as a coping as a healthier coping mechanism to dealing with what I had just experienced and a lot of it was reactive and a lot of myself I look back now I realize I had a lot of reactive versus proactive so I was reacting to what happened, I wasn't going out and someone like, you know, Tier who went out and sought military service 
Um, there are people that decided that they were going to pol be police and fire and military and they went after it. And man, I look at those people and I really, I look up to each and every one of them for that selflessness. Um, for me, it was a lot more just a way of coping with this shit. I knew that going and working out, I felt stronger internally. I felt better and this feeling stronger physically and mentally that that's a big thing. Mm -hmm. I think moving forward into that's a big theme that remains with me now. I don't know if I'm articulating that properly, but I eventually when I started, cause this friend had kind of outed me as having a training certification and working out was something that I just did for myself. But when I began to share and teaching other people how to do that properly and seeing them get that release of training and eventually getting results, that became so incredibly rewarding. There were clients from those days I still talk to yeah. on a regular basis. That's cool. It, which is awesome. I'm My favorite to work with were like the younger teenagers that, um, you know, knowing that I had an impact on them at at a really important time when some of them really needed it, that it was awesome. Uh, I got sucked into the, to the bodybuilding <laughs> side of things. And I know that so much of that was me creating this protective shell because I was on the inside still pretty, I guess, terrified of the outside world as it was now. And by building this like hard protective shell, it wasn't really doing shit. But in my mind, yeah. I felt... I felt a little more like I had this, I had an armor sure. on. It was a bit of a shield. Yeah, for sure. So spent a decade doing that. I found purpose kind of on accident. I wound up getting married to a coworker. is <laughs> a, a boss at one point. And that was where my story takes another big turn. And I'll try not to go down too many rabbit holes because I've got a lot of weird shit in there. <laughs> but we wound up getting married and that exploded. God, what year was it? 2011. He had a major accident. Obviously there's that one friend. Everyone knows that one friend that always takes things a little too far mm -hmm. and never fully grows up. Like everyone grows up and out of the party phase. And there's a one friend that it becomes a problem. Yep. Yeah. I was married to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, he actually had a, a major accident. He was deadlifting and blew both quad tendons. Um, uh, that scares me. Ripped him off the bone. And the surgeon was, that was supposed to do the, the surgery, that was like a special surgeon, wasn't available for like three days. So that whole time he's just sitting there and this muscle is retracting the whole time because it's not anchored. So that was major, major surgery, um, major recovery time. And I, during that time, I had to step up and I trained both of our clients. I was taking care of him. And he went from having a, a partying problem to now having a prescription for Oxycontin and Percocet and doctor shopping. So that's where shit got really... Sure. With, that went off the rails um, somewhere in 2011. And it, that was super... That was super traumatic. Uh, to this day, I can't really understand or explain everything that had happened. Um, and that's when I kind of started waking up myself. I thought I was losing my mind, but I was really regaining and recovering parts of my, you know, the last nine years that I'd just blocked out and kind of barreled through for survival. So I, I left and I quit everything. I was a, a trainer, I had a client base, I had just gotten into Flex Magazine, I had done a big MPC show and placed really well, I qualified for nationals, and then all this shit happened and I realized like I am not okay and quit, which was the hardest thing I ever did because we've all got ego. I quit everything and got a job at a grocery store <laughs> <laughs> so that I could have stable income and get some, some therapy and some mental health care for myself. Yeah. 
So I was actually going to, that's what I, you reminded me as we started talking about this. So you experienced a lot of these things. How did you start to identify like, okay, something is not quite right and, and I need to fix it. How did you, were there like turning points where you're like, okay, like this is traumatic. I know that it's traumatic. I don't know how it's affecting me, but I know that it is and I need help. Like, um, how did you identify stuff like that? So with him, it was this external thing that I couldn't ignore anymore. I, I couldn't just shut down and go train and ignore the rest of the world and, and keep, you know, coping and getting through my day to day. Now this shit was in my face. I was being woken up in the middle of the night by a screaming adult that wanted me to help him, like hearing voices like this shit was intense. Sure. So that kind of I had to I had to face what was going on. Okay. And I realized that during that time I it this sounds so fucking crazy, but this is really what happened. I started noticing all the time this thing that I had ignored. I didn't address anyone that asked me about like my family, friends that had asked cuz at this time we're living in North Carolina. We'd moved back down there together. Anyone that asked me in that 9 years anything about like being in Manhattan during 9/11 or any of that shit. I basically would gloss right over it and act like it didn't happen. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. Um, all of a sudden, I'm now really, really present in my own life and this pile of shit that I had in my lap. But I started noticing the strangest things. Uh, the numbers 9-11 on the clock every morning and every night. Yeah. And it was almost like, and it was everywhere all of a sudden. And it was my subconscious screaming at me that I had shit that I needed to face altogether. So I I just, it started with weird things. Like I still, I'm hard headed. So I started seeking out a lot of alternative methods of, of healing. And I remember going to a shit you not, a shaman who, he was a chiropractor that ha- did shamanic practices and um, just a spiritual type healer and I remember sitting with this guy and he's adjusting me and he was like so have you experienced any trauma and I was like uh <laughs> and I'm not joking I'm I'm like looking around the room like uh well I broke trauma like like well I've got I've hurt stuff is that what you mean like broke my broke my <laughs> right arm playing soccer it broke my other one uh on the monkey bars and it's not until like a couple of visits later that I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing. <laughs> um, and that's when I went, well, I probably need a real therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I, yeah, I got a job at a grocery store and pulled the plug on pretty much everything, which was super hard because my ego and I'd built, it worked so hard to build this, building a life and everything kind of collapsed all at once. Yeah. My marriage collapsed. Uh, the career that I was building and starting to get some like traction, on. traction yeah. and momentum that I can't say it collapsed because I did it to myself. Sure, you close that chapter. Right. Yeah. But I, knowing it was really hard, I knew that I was n- I shouldn't be in the position of helping anyone else. I yeah. needed to help myself. So that was a really that was the beginning of my kind of ground zero. I was at nowhere land at a 31 I left with a thousand dollars to my name which I spent on my first first month's rent and deposit on on a new apartment and was working for like 12 50 an hour at a at a Trader Joe's which Trader Joe's is awesome they I knew they had great benefits which is why I got the job there but it was super fucking humbling yeah I can imagine so starting from nothing again right What was what was the next step after that? Oh God, a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, God, where I I worked at the grocery store. I went through a good like year and change of therapy. I went several times a week. Yeah, and which is awesome. I I knew what I needed. Yeah. Um, which it that shit is hard. <laughs> so is. let me tell you right now that therapy is awesome. Uh, definitely. It's something that we need to talk more about. People should do it and utilize it. It's hard work, but holy shit, it will help you take facilitate steps to getting out of your own way. Yep. And and unpacking some pretty hefty 
bags, which not to say I'm perfect. I, I've still got my share shit, but everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You yeah. know, I've been through the rigmarole of, of therapy Oof. too. And I, I know where you're coming from. Oof. It's, <laughs> Oof. it's not always fun, but it's super rewarding. It is. It is. You know, I've talked to a couple other folks about it and it's one of those things that you have to go in with the open mindset, be yeah. humble about it and like be ready for it to be fucking horrible yeah. for a little while. Yeah. It was year. It, it, it took me, it took me years. Um, I, so knowing that I was at this place of had not a penny to my name, I was doing all this work to kind of try to figure out who I was again now without, you know, misfitness. And um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Backtrack, I did at one point take the uh, NYPD exam. Did which you? Is, yeah, I did. And I scored really high and I didn't have the appropriate college credits. Oh. To, so it's, I mean, now knowing my background and what I did in my early 20s, it's <laughs> laughable. But there was a calling at that point to try and, I, I did have some some parts of me that wanted to be involved in trying to do something. Uh, military was at the time, especially not something that I really wanted to do because I didn't want to give up my own personal freedom. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, from there I went and I tried some different stuff and I tried uh, hair school cause I thought maybe that would spark some of the creative parts of my brain. I didn't really like it. And eventually I found my way back to working in bars Okay. and I was still kind of closed off in a lot of ways. When I'd gone back to bartending, there was so much that had happened in, in a short period of time that I, I wasn't always super comfortable kind of talking about myself because that's a lot of big, that's a lot of big shit and it's not a normal trajectory. Right. But what I found is number one, I had a hard time sleeping. So being up at night was super easy for me and it kind of helped with that whole odd schedule. So that worked great. And I eventually really fell in love with, with making drinks. There was a creative aspect. There was a people aspect. I was moving, I was on my feet. So that kind of helped me get out of my head and into the moment. And eventually just really like took to learning how to, to bartend. I, moved around at a couple places and then started at the door at another spot that was known as like bartender boot camp. It was a classic cocktail <laughs> yeah. speakeasy style bar. So started at the door and then I'd moved to uh, bar backing and then I moved to serving and then I eventually got moved behind the bar and I bounced around a bit until I found a spot that I considered like home, which was a little whiskey bar in Raleigh, North Carolina called blind barber. And we had tons of antiques and, we did classic cocktails, um, but it was like a neighborhood type bar. Sure. It had a dive feel, but we had great spirits and great cocktails and a really awesome group of regulars. And when I first started there, I was making like 50 bucks a shift. It was really, <laughs> it was, um, it was tough. And I did other jobs. I worked at a gym part-time and another bar and eventually was able to go full-time with that place and we built it up and we were rocking it. So that was awesome. But what I found over time is that when you're behind the bar, you kind of can't help but exchange when you're in that kind of an intimate bar setting where it's not just turn and burn, you wind up getting to know people. You wind up talking to them. They ask you about yourself. And eventually I just kind of would start opening up. And the more I would talk to them about where I was at and what it brought me there, the easier it got. Yeah. And it, it kind of took some of that like, the edge off yeah which was awesome it was super healing for me and i had a great time and i met some amazing people so i loved my little like quiet piece of the world and i dealt with i balanced i won't say dealt with balance being a bartender um by i trained myself during the day got really into trail running and i lifted and i did a lot of volunteer work so i did stuff with mission 22 i wound up doing stuff with um, gallant view of run ranger run for mm -hmm. several years running and that was my way, finally, of starting to, at, at that point, I was like, well, I'm not joining the military. I'm covered in tattoos and whatever else. But it was a way for me to start giving back to people that had given so much of themselves in a time where 
where I was running away from fire, they were running to it, yeah. which I thought was pretty amazing. So it was cool to be able to, to do some stuff for them. And, uh, a lot of that's kind of how I wound up. I mean, that is how I wound up doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. And you're doing, uh, the BRCC fund now. Yes. So I am the corporate giving operations specialist. So I do a lot of everything on, on that side of things. So, uh, donations, giving coffee to nonprofits for their events, helping to set up these after parties for the total archery challenge where we're raising money for the BRCC fund, which our mission is to support active duty veterans, first responders and conservation efforts, all things that really mean a lot to me. So that's my sense of having lost a sense of purpose for so long, having that back and being able to, to give something to people that gave so much of themselves. It's super rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I know Tyr and I talked about it a little bit as far as what you guys are, are doing and, and, you know, making strides and helping support the veteran community in small businesses. And I think it's really cool. So, you know, I, I don't really know all of the things that you guys are doing now or their projects people should be keyed into and helping out with. So right now we've got a huge initiative to give 5k a week to veteran owned businesses. And we've been $5,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to veteran owned business. So that's been really, really fun. Like seeking out some of these smaller businesses and hooking them up and giving them a little bump, especially after, you know, COVID and 2020 was a really challenging time. So we've, we've done stuff for some uh, smaller like breweries and we've done stuff for some supplement companies. So the BRCC fund then where can, if people want to get a hold of you, help out, find ways to get involved, where, where should we look to? So you'll be able to donate on the website. We also getting the word out for the BRCC Gives page on Instagram. Um, and you can find us through the end of the summer at the Total Archery Challenge. All of those after party events will be there and we're raising money for the fund. So the website is brccfund.org. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you guys up a whole lot longer, but I also don't want to gloss over a lot of the things that you've gone through. So if people are trying to work through stuff, you know, maybe trying to find their own way, have experienced something traumatic, is there anything that you've learned that you're like, this is incredibly important that I would like to share with you? Sit with it. Uh, like, don't ignore it. It's going to be hard. It's going to suck. And um, you're just going to have to sit with it. Go and seek proper support and assistance to help you work through it. It does get tremendously better, but you have to do the work. And I, I mean, this is coming from someone who was frozen for a good couple of years there, I just didn't think I'd ever really have much of a, a future starting at nothing again at 31. And I have a fucking awesome life now. But I had to sit with all of that and kind of slowly unpack it and do the work. Because if, if, if you don't do that work, number one, you're going to be a blockage to yourself to getting anywhere or doing anything that you really want to do. But you're also going to really have a hard time with personal relationships. If you're not okay with at least touching on where you've been and what you've been through, it's going to be really difficult to have any genuine relationships, friendships, romantic relationships with anyone because you're not, you're not, you're okay not there. With, you're not there. You're not okay with telling your story. I mean, this shit's not easy to talk about. And I get self-conscious because I'm like, man, my life is fucking awesome now. And I've got all these really great things going on, but I guess it's, kind of a starting point a lot of people not knowing where I came from and how I got to where I am now beyond just like some cool photos on on the internet um there's a there's a lot that happened in between there that like built up to all of this and just be relentless in your pursuit to to find peace within yourself to find I think acceptance is the most important word yeah you're not always going to feel great about your background, your story. But if you can just kind of learn to accept like, well, this is where I've been and that's yeah. okay. Nobody is totally happy with their background though. Hell no. Um, it's, but we're all human and we've all got some, some weird things that go on, but relentlessly pursue life. So just know that it will get better, but you have to put in the work first and don't give up on the things that you want to do. Make a list 
of the things that you want to experience moving forward and just know that if you keep at the hard work on the inside and you know doing the little tedious rebuilding finances and whatever else you'll get those opportunities you'll create those opportunities for yourself don't give up on on that don't give up on yourself yeah that's great advice you know that's something that as i've been talking with a lot of folks throughout these interviews is it seems to be a common theme in terms of looking at yourself kind of introspectively and understanding, Hey, I need, I'm broken in this way, but not forever. Yeah. And I have to work at it. And, you know, I've been through things too, where I've like kind of to your point of the therapy, it's like, Hey, I have to look at myself. This shit's hard, but Mm -hmm. in order for me to make positive impacts and strides forward, I'm going to go through it. And it's fun and it's great when you find people that see that as well and they, they recognize hard work. And kind of like we were talking about earlier, you, you surround yourself, you know, good recognizes good and they push you forward. Yeah. And I think that I, I hope that when people hear stuff like this that they can find other folks and say, hey, like I'm working on myself. Can you help me with it too? Yeah, you don't have to be a perfect person or in a perfect place to, to you know, start moving forward and doing things that you want to do. Look you've got to have the right people around you. Good people attract good people and you'll wind up finding, you know, if don't stay complacent, look for other people that want more out of life and, you know, are of good character and you work together and you help lift each other up. It's, you know, not, not the kind where you're stepping on each other's heads to get over into the next rung, but you really link arms and you pull each other up together. And that's super important because, no man is an island. We all need support. And also working with awesome people and linking up with cool people that have big ambitions. It's fun because you all get excited together and you push each other forward. Relentlessly pursue life. I believe that sums up this conversation extremely concisely. After stopping the recording, Tier Nicole and I continued to chat for a little bit, and uh, one thing she wanted to make sure was captured was that even if you're dealt a terrible situation uh, and have to start from the bottom up again, it's not the end of the road. Be relentless in pursuing what it is that you love, surround yourself with good people, and continuously push yourself in personal growth and well-being. I appreciated the openness in this conversation and hope that for those of you listening to take Nicole's advice to do what is needed to take care of yourself and build your own badass life and story that amazes you that what amazes you when you look back on it. No man is an island. With that being said, her Instagram is linked in the episode description as well as the BRCC gives page. Uh, as far as updates, I've received some feedback that uh, you guys are actually out there taking some things you've learned uh, from the show so far and uh, implementing it into real life. I love that. That's what this podcast is all about. So please continue letting me know uh, what you're up to. Feel free to uh, blow my email up, my DMs, text messages, whatever the case may be. Keep it flowing. That being said, I've got some shirts, cups, hats, and other swag in the shop that I would love to see you all repping while you're out doing your crazy thing. So uh, feel free to tag me in your photos and let's see uh, some of the wild child shenanigans uh, that you're up to. Otherwise, you have a great week and I'll catch you hooligans next time. Mountain Primal Fuel Sticks are perfect for folks like you and I, constantly busy, stuck on the road, sitting at a desk between job sites, crushing Excel spreadsheets, or if you're one of the lucky ones, headed to the range or a hunting trip. They are the perfect size to keep a couple in a pack, or if you've got a wife that gets hangry, to toss her way. Admittedly, when my wife gets hangry, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation, so please use these to your advantage. They are 100% Highland Cow with zero hormones and zero antibiotics straight out of Colorado. Use code VANGUARD to get 15% off at mountainprimal.com.